Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip answers your questions such as, what's going on in the market? What are futures? What does it mean for the market to be in a bubble? Where does the grayscale premium come from? And financial planning for stock options. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip. Alrighty. This is the Ask Philip segment where we're going to answer some questions that I got about the market and investing this week. Let's get to the first one, though, which was super important. Like, what's going on with this market? So for a while, forgive me for y'all who who faithfully listen to every single episode and you feel like, you know, repeating the same thing over and over again. Well, that's because, like, I'm, you know, the same. We're still in the same part of the cycle, and and understanding the cycle is how you know how to position. And so, everything moves in cycles. Uh, I think we talked about before. You got cycles where, you know, dollar goes up, certain asset classes do well. Dollar goes down, certain asset classes do well. Those happen over long term, long term cycles. Let's think of like twenty, thirty years. And also short-term cycles, which is the business cycle, which is five to five to eight years. And so, where we are right now, and where we've been for a few years, is like a turning, you know, a, a turning point in that cycle. And the turning point, I like to use the analogy of like the winter, you know, winter months. You know how you know how like right now, for example, we wake up and it's forty-eight degrees, and then by the time the afternoon comes, it's sixty-eight degrees because we're transitioning from winter to, to summer. So markets do that as well. Go from hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, or dollar up cycle to dollar down cycle over and over and over again. So we've been doing dealing with that for the past year. But the trend in the last week has defined more aggressively, you know, a cycle where dollars, you know, dollars going down, meaning assets are moving in, you know, to, to overseas, right? J- Japan's a favorite, emerging markets are a favorite, commodity companies that sell commodities think of like energy companies you know natural gas companies you know anything that's selling like raw material type products lumber those tend to do well and then when you have interest rates rising at an accelerated rate like they are right now which is again part of the dollar down cycle uh, you also have in the short term financial institutions that that do well so that that is what's happening it's it's being the bond market and I mentioned this in the last last ask Philip segment the bond market drives everything, right? Because stocks can be very irrational for a long time. Tesla's a a great example. Like it's priced at some crazy value and it can keep going up a lot because it's, you know, it can be driven up by retail investors and and, and, and a lot of things. But bonds, you don't have a lot of unsophisticated investors investing in bonds. Matter of fact, I don't think you have any (laughs) unsophisticated investors investing in bonds. So these are all very smart people who are crunching economic numbers around the world, looking at company balance sheets. And it's a very efficient marketplace for pricing what's going on in the world. And so the bond market, if, if you really want to get smart at building a portfolio, understand the moves in the bond market, and you'll understand the, the big picture macroeconomic environment, which will allow you to position for stock, bonds, commodities, or whatever you might trade. But the bond market is disciplining central banks right now around the world, right? Basically saying, hey, Y'all are being like uh, real reactive, 
you know, real loose. You are government. You're not being fiscally responsible. And we're not going to take too much of this creating money out of thin air for too long. And so they're disciplining, you know, the Fed. And, and, and by the way, like the part where it's going back and forth, like central banks can fight this for a period of time. But if you look at any history of central banks fighting the bond market, they always lose in the long term. They might get fight in the short term, but they're going to lose. And, and I like to use the analogy, too, of thinking about it. The, the more they fight, like imagine a ball being pushed. When you push a ball down in the water when you're in a pool, the further you push it down, the more violently it reacts when it comes back out. And so they can keep fighting it. It's only going to hurt the reaction of markets moving towards you know, dollar down assets, right? Because I'm, and, and I might say central bank, but basically the central bank of the world is the Fed, right? And everything, every other central bank has to react off the Fed because, you know, we're, we have the most debt out in the marketplace and our interest rates move everything. And so that's what's going on with the market right now. The interest rates are going up a lot and fast and that's freaking people out. And so, and you're also having the rotation of stocks that when it, when it happens, it goes from growth stocks. So the, the Pelotons of the world, the, you know, Tesla's of the world, all of these growth companies, especially the ones that are making money, like they're getting smashed and the money's moving towards things that do well in dollar down, dollar down environment. Again, energy, financials, non-U.S. stocks, and that's what's causing the volatility, right? Because the big players, they can't just trade in and out of a position overnight. It takes months and sometimes years to fully reposition their portfolio. So that's the market. Next question. Hey, Philip, what are futures? So I got asked this from a client, what are futures contracts? The simple version of it is it's, it's just a way to hedge, a market creator to, to hedge your risk. So let's say you sell chickens. I mean, let me just use a real example. Let's say you're Chick-fil-A and, and your nuggets cost, your nugget meal costs like $7 or $8. I forget, I forget what the actual amount is, but I love the nugget meals. But you say, okay, I'm on menu. This is what we're charging. But the price of chicken, right, goes up and down based on supply and demand daily. And so you're like, well, cool, here are our revenues, here's our expenses. We want to lock in a profit margin so that we can make some money. And we know we got to charge this. So let's let's go into the futures market and let's, let's buy chicken at this price that it is right now to lock in our price. So at least we know over the next 12, 12 months what we can charge for chicken because we pre-bought our chicken to the futures market, right? So that's... That's the basic level of, of why it's there. But then you also have on the other end of that trade. So if somebody's buying, somebody's selling, you have speculators who are trying to make money on it, right? And and, and by the way, the Chick-fil-A doesn't care to make or lose money. They just want to lock it in their price for their profit. The speculators trying to actually make money on chicken. So they're saying, they're they're saying, hey, we're, we we might lose sometimes if 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 we you know if we sell chicken at Chick-fil-A and the price you know if we sell Chick-fil-A, they lock in their price. And the price goes up. I mean, man, like you know that that wasn't such a you know a great deal for us because we could have sold for later for for more later. But net net over time, if you have if you have a really good trading program as a speculator, you can make money net net over time, right? And that's when you hear about trend following or commodities traders or all that kind of stuff. That's that's what they do. You also have the people who are like selling chickens, so you don't just have Chick Fil A. You have the people who raise chickens and sell chickens who can also hedge on that market. So it's super complex, but just know it's a hedging market to allow businesses to hedge out risk and allow speculators who provide the liquidity for the market to make some money speculating. Next question. What does it mean for the market to be in a bubble? This actually is like a really good question because a client that asked this question to me, I, I use an analogy. Let me find a better analogy because that analogy that I used wasn't wasn't so great, but I'm, I'm pulling up. Like I have... 
I have a definition of a bubble because diff- different people are going to have different opinions on 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 what a bubble is, and there's not like a there's not like a one plus one equals two, right? It's it's, it's more of a analysis because pe- people have I've heard the p- bubble term you know every year since twenty you know twenty eleven twenty twelve we're in a bubble we're in a bubble. So my definition of a bubble is I look at some important factors, right? So I'll say, hey, are are stock prices as a whole, right? And and let's talk about the U.S. because a bubble, we're, it could be a bubble in multiple different asset classes. But if we're talking to, in this context, we're talking about is it a bubble in U.S. stocks? Well, we can look at the different valuation metrics for U.S. stocks, whether it's total market capitalization to GDP, uh, price to earnings, right? Some complicated discounted cash flow model, which us nerds do. But you can look at it and say, hey, is this expensive relative to historic norms? And if it is, you check one box and say, okay, maybe it's a bubble. Then you go to the next box. I like to say, okay, are prices discounting future rapid price inflation? Meaning, if it's expensive and they're saying, hey, we think, you know, we think that the price is going to go up a lot, you know, through your analysis of figuring out what the market's discounting from a price standpoint, then you might say, Man, okay, that's check number two, right? Because they're being too aggressive, right? Basically, what that does is it's saying, hey, the market is being too greedy right now. So that's kind of no, next check. Uh, third, I look at is, hey, are purchases being financed by a lot of leverage, right? You know, a check for that is a check towards it being in a bubble. Are buyers making forward purchases? What does that mean? So I have a client who sells lumber and the lumber cost is getting out of hand. Like they, he was telling me how they're like having to, you know, jump to different countries and, and, and buy lumber because the price is going up so fast because they sell they sell to, to to home builders, and so they're they're having to go to the futures market and lock in prices of lumber now because it's going up so fast. Right, that is a sign of a bubble. Have new participants, and that's happening not just for, for my client, like all over the place along the supply chain. Um, so have new participants enter the market. Yeah, you, this is the Robin Hood GameStop. What is it called? The Robin Hood uh, Wall Street Bets crowd, right? They're, they have not been part of the stock market like since 1999, right? They're back. Another check towards a bubble. Is there broad bullish sentiment? You can talk to friends, watch CNBC. That, that's more subjective, you know, but I like to look at it and say, hey, our... Are people who I know who never invested in stocks talking about stocks? Like, is it kind of a is it is it fun again to talk about stocks to people? You, know, you can test it out. Go talk to three friends that you know that aren't stock that aren't professional money managers, and if they're talking about stocks, then you're like, okay, yeah, check that box. Would tightening risk popping a bubble? So I talked on the previous question about what's going on with the market. Tightening is interest rates going up, money being sucked out of the system, and or money not being printed to. Uh, fuel the system. And so what we've seen over the last few years is as interest rates rise, the market doesn't like that. And if there's uncertainty around the delivery of the stimulus checks, the market goes down. So that means, yes, tightening drops the market. So bubble, another not sure for bubble. And by the way, I stole this from like Ray Dalio. I didn't I didn't make this up, right? I, I, was, I, I was building my own system. I was like, wait, I bet Ray Dalio has a system. So I went through his system and I was like, yep, yep, he got it in one of the books. But this allows me to say, okay, cool. From a process standpoint, yeah, we're in a bubble, right? And then, and then you can decide what to do in that example. Like my example of in a bubble, you just you don't you don't skate in the middle of the ice of a frozen lake 
in a bubble, right? Because because it's going to thaw soon, and if you're in the middle, you're going to drown, right? Meaning, don't take a whole lot of crazy risks. People there, and there are people who are the people who are trading options and taking five thousand, running up to five hundred thousand dollars in a short period of time with a bunch of leverage, right? That's no bueno, right? That don't you know? There's a time to be greedy and a time to be fearful, right? This is a time to maybe not so much be fearful, but be cautious, right? Be very cautious. Make make less money than what you think you could make because we're in a bubble. And if it and when it pops, the ones that are taking the most risk lose the most, if not everything. All right, next question. Where does the Grayscale premium come from? Grayscale is a product that, full disclosure, we you know we we own in client accounts to get exposure to to Bitcoin, uh, but they have lots of different crypto type products where it's basically a trust that you can own shares in. That, that owns uh, Bitcoin, and so when it says it trades at a premium with with, with the trust, but let, let's let I think I actually looked it up. The Bitcoin trust owns something like six hundred fifty thousand Bitcoins, right? And so if you added up all the Bitcoins they own, if the price is I'm just making this number up, if it's worth twenty billion dollars, right, and one share in the company, right, is 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 your share of the twenty billion. Let's say that. Let's say a share of the Bitcoin trust is the, the Bitcoin value of that share is forty bucks, but the, but the share sells for forty five bucks. There's a there's a premium, right? You, you basically you're buying your shares for more than what that share of Bitcoin is actually worth, right? And and by the way, the Bitcoin the GBTC premium actually has has gone this past week, so it's not there. But there there was a persistent premium on buying the Grayscale Trust investment. Before, so I mean, you had to pay more money for that share to have the share of Bitcoin than if you bought it directly, and the and the and the and the reason is because it, it was it was easier to buy, right? Most people don't want to go and buy find out an exchange to go buy Bitcoin to custody their own assets, or especially money managers who are doing it for the clients, because it's you know there's like a gray area that you don't even want to do in that environment. So the Grayscale Trust made it an easy way to be able to get Bitcoin exposure. And because they provide an easy use, just like anything with, with in, in the supply and demand world, right? if there's a bigger demand than supply, so a lot more people want to get exposure to Bitcoin than there were you know, products available that didn't have a premium and didn't require you to secure your own Bitcoin, the price that it, you know, th- there's a premium for it. So it's going to sell more than what the underlying asset is. But then there's also a discount, right? So there can be a discount, which there is as of yesterday when I checked, where it's selling for below um, what we call net asset value or the value of the assets uh, in the trust, right? And that happens when people are negative, right? So so basically the premium comes from, you know, is demand, you know, for, for a constant level of supply, is demand more than supply or is demand less than supply at the current moment? And that's where the premium or the discount comes from. Financial planning for stock options. And this actually is the last question um, of the day, but I'm going to do a more in-depth one about taxes and everything next week with your, your my favorite guest host, Allison Rife Martin. But here's the here's the bigger picture. I like to think of like a checklist that you want to go to go through whenever you are deciding on stock options. Because what ends up happening is, I, and, and I have a couple of clients, but I see people who they'll have a big chunk of their network tied up in company stock and. You know, I had a client who their net worth swung like a million bucks both ways in a matter of six months because of their stock options. And that can be like just emotionally like stressful because you obviously believe in the company because you work there, but you also don't want to like, you have this amazing net worth and you don't want to lose it all. And so anytime you have high emotions, 
and you don't have a process or a system in place, that's just very bad for decision-making. And so one of the things that I do for clients that have stock-based compensation, whether it be you know stock options or stock grants or restricted stock units or stock awards or employee stock purchase plans is, hey, let's let's have a system in place, right? So let's, let's kind of going back to the checklist, like what's going on in the economy? Is that favorable to your industry, right? And we can we can objectively determine that. How well do you feel about your company's stock price over the next five to seven years? And I follow up with a question because everybody's going to be like, oh, good, or they would have not <laughs> been working there. So the follow-up question is, when they say yes, okay, if you didn't work here, would you own as much stock as you own right now? No, 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 no not that. Well, let, me, let me ask it different. I actually ask it different. I actually say, would you actually go back today and buy the amount of stock that you actually own in the company, right? So if you if you had the cash in the bank, that's equivalent to the amount of stock that you own, would you take that cash and go buy this much stock today, right now, like with your own money? And then you get a different answer, right? Because if it's, you know, if they're worth $5 million and $3 million of it is in company stock, right? Or if you're worth, you know, a million bucks and 400000 in company stock, these are like, you know, examples that are that I've seen in real life, then you think, man, like, I don't know if I want 40% of my money in one stock, this stock. I don't know if I want 50% of my money in one stock, this stock. If I had to actually buy it, if it wasn't part of compensation and I had not just sold it. So that gives a, a data point. Then you follow up, all right, what's the maximum amount that you want at any given time in your company stock? Which that number is probably going to be bigger than if you were building your own portfolio. Like if, if, if you're managing your own portfolio, you might say, I don't want more than 5% of my money in one stock. But if you, it's part of your compensation, it's probably going to be a lot higher than that. But so I'm saying, hey, for company stock, what's the what's the max that you want in a part of your net worth like to, like total? And I can guide them, but I want to kind of get an answer. Like 50% is probably you know way too high if you're not the CEO. No, but maybe they'll say 10%, 20%, whatever the number is, right? And then and then I follow up and say, okay, so let's let's say let's say your you know your maximum is 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 30%. That's 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 the max you want to get to before you have an auto sell if you can on anything that's not restricted. What's your target, right? So so in an ideal world, where do you want to reset your portfolio to? Do you want to at any given at 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 all times have 10%, 5%, 20%, right? We figure that out. And so that's similar to you know, if you're managing a portfolio, you kind of have a target allocation amount and then a max before you rebalance, right? Because and so then we say, okay, let's put it on a on a systematic scale. So we're going to rebalance your entire portfolio, you know, once a year. The portfolio that that you manage or I manage. This is this is me talking to a client, but portfolio you manage and I ma- and I manage and rebalance your company stock based compensation to the appropriate target. In the plan. However, in the interim, if it if it breaches that maximum, then we it, and we can sell some because it's not restricted. Then it's going to auto. We're going to auto say, okay, here's time. It's time to rebalance and get it back down to our target because it got too too high of a level. And then we we treat this, and then it becomes a process, right? Then you got to think about it. It's like, hey, if I'm excited about what's going on because I just closed a big deal, right? It doesn't impact how much company stock that I keep or own or options that I exercise or keep because I have a process and a program. And that's the most important part, right? One of the other factors that we factor in is taxes, right? Um, that's why Alice and I are going to cover this more in detail. But in the decision-making process, the you know taxes are important. The other going through the process of the other ones I think are more important than taxes. But factoring in taxes is, is super helpful because it's going gonna, it's gonna to add, if you do it right, a little bit of alpha over time 
by thinking through taxes and how it impacts you now and in the future. And, and again, I'll wait to the conversation with Allison next week to go through that in detail. But that's financial planning with really stock-based compensation is what I, I said, stock options, but really it's stock-based compensation. So I'm talking to some folks and a lot of folks that have listened to the podcast for a while and are even clients didn't know that I wrote a book. So my book, Retirement Investing 101, sells on Amazon. You can buy it. It's 20 bucks. Super short read. But you don't have to buy it. If you go to my website, stonehillwealthmanagement.com, I have a free PDF download that you can get it. And because I, I didn't write the book to make any money off of it. I wrote the book as a way to educate people on how to plan and invest for retirement. And you can interchange retirement with financial independence because I'm not super excited about like retirement, but I want to be financially independent. And so this book helps you understand how to build a portfolio and manage a portfolio to reach your financial independence goal, which it tells you also how to actually figure out what that number is. And A, it allows you to do it yourself if you're a do-it-yourselfer, or B, allows you to vet investment professionals that you're working with or you're thinking about working with so you can know if they have a similar philosophy. Because as a fee-based or a fee-only investment advisor, I don't get paid commissions to sell products. My clients pay me a fee to manage money. This year, we instituted a minimum, so I can't manage money for everybody anymore. And I'm, it hurts me when I turn people down, but I, but I have to because I have got to maintain a, a high service with the clients that I do have. But this book will help others who are, who are like, hey, I, you know, I just need to make sure I'm asking the right questions and my advisor it gives you a template that'll help you not work with the wrong advisor. And I put all that in, in the book, different types of advisors, different myths. Check it out on my website, stonehillwealthmanagement.com, a retirement investing one-on-one. And if you really want to buy a hard copy, if you like that, you can go to Amazon and buy it. Y'all enjoy your day. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. That's StonehillWealthManagement.com forward slash talk. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.